1: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. I really think that one of the great gifts
2: uh, and opportunities of this career of filmmaking is to expand out through the lens of empathy my view of everything, and our view of everything, and Anitza's view of, of everything.
0: That's screenwriter David Kajanik with an inspiring and optimistic perspective on his chosen profession. Kajanik is a regular collaborator with Luca Guadagnino, including the director's latest, the cannibalism coming of age tale Bones and All, which stars Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. This week on the show, my interview with Kajanik, plus a conversation about some of the best book to film adaptations of the last few years. That and more, ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Happy Thanksgiving week, everyone. Later in the show, some of the recent film adaptations we're thankful for. But first, as we approach the end of the movie year, we wanted to make a request. You've heard us talk about the Film Spotting family and all the benefits that come with that membership. And if you haven't already signed up, we encourage you to check it out at filmspottingfamily.com. Today, though, we're asking for something that doesn't cost you a dime. Recommend us. That's it. Just tell someone about the show. Here are some options. Share an episode of Film Spotting on a social network or discussion forum. It could be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord, Mastodon, Blurg. Only one of those is made up. Tell somebody in your personal network about us face to face with family over turkey, over lunch with a colleague or friend, over email even. Or, You could rate us on Apple Podcasts, which is still where the bulk of our listeners come from, or on another podcast platform. We're fortunate to have over 3,600 ratings and an average of 4.6 on Apple, but our last review is in August. It'll only take a minute or two, and some fresh takes could really help us get in front of some more folks. Thanks in advance for that, and thanks for your continued support of film spotting. Now on with the show, starting with screenwriter David Kajanik. He's the writer of The New Bones and All, directed by Luca Guadagnino. That film, a coming-of-age drama with a cannibalism twist, stars Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell, and it opens in wide release this week. Bones and All is Kajanik's third film with Guadagnino. He wrote the screenplays for 2015's A Bigger Splash and the 2018 remake of Dario Argento's cult horror classic Suspiria. I caught up with Kajanik during Iowa City Film Scenes Refocus Film Festival, which is dedicated to celebrating the art of adaptation. It was a homecoming of sorts for Kajanik, who attended the Iowa Writers Workshop and who had ambitions to write novels before becoming a screenwriter. Not only that, but all three of Kajanik's collaborations with Guadagnino are adaptations, either of earlier films or, in the case of Bones and All, a 2015 novel by Camille D'Angelis. In our conversation, Kajanik talks about how his writing background made him uniquely qualified for adaptation work, how remaking a film requires a different approach than an adaptation, and the surprising subtext of Bones and All that the book's author asked him to preserve in his adaptation. Here's our conversation.
1: I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody.
0: Famous last words. David Wall- There are exceptions. Your work is largely horror-based and you've consistently adapted material for the screen. And I'm curious how much of that is by design or was by design, adapting being something that you're particularly comfortable with as much as you can be comfortable with any writing project and that process providing a challenge that you find especially rewarding.
2: Well, in my case, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I didn't train in screenwriting. I trained in fiction writing. I attended the writer's workshop here at the University of Iowa and thought that I would write novels. I thought that I would, my life would be a combination of teaching and and writing fiction. And so when I took a kind of left turn into, into filmmaking, I didn't come with the sort of habits uh, and shapes of screenwriting in my head. And so when I started to go out for, for jobs early in my career, when they were adaptation jobs, I found that when I was in the room, you know, sort of pitching to studio executives or directors or whomever, I had a, a level of confidence in how to take apart a book uh, in a way that was both respectful to the thematic intentions of the author, uh, but sort of unafraid of breaking bones, if you will, to, to translate a text from a sort of textual medium to a visual one. And so I just, I, I think that's probably how i got so many adaptation jobs early on is because you know whoever was doing the hiring felt a certain assurance from me <laughs> that, that i
0: that i felt comfortable i felt more comfortable with books in fact than i did with film earlier in my career you mentioned thematic intentions of the author is that something on every project you consider whether it's then something that you're going to try to stay true to, or you're just going to be aware of the fact that you're maybe uh, subverting in some way or playing with? I think it
2: differs between remakes and adaptations. With, an, with a straight adaptation, I do want to be respectful. I do want to be attentive to the worldview of the author. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily take a job adapting a book if I didn't feel the worldview of the author and my own worldview were sympathetic. to to one another in some way with a remake i think the obligation is somehow to uh evolve or devolve or subvert the original in some in some way that is um striking you know either dramatically and or thematically so i i i i I think uh remakes require some kind of disruption where i think adaptations work They, they can be disruptive but i think they have to in some way I don't know. Maybe the best way I can say it is approximate the experience of reading the book for the first time Mm. in a visual language rather than a textual one.
0: So I want to get into some of the titles and specific approaches to them, but I'm curious first about what might not be unique to each adaptation, whether a remake or an adaptation of a book. What is constant about the actual process of adapting for you?
2: Well, there are technical things that that sort of happen over and over again. How a film must deal with exposition in a way that's necessarily different than how a a book might. Um, And so I find myself running up against the same question with every adaptation, which is, who is the audience in the sense? not I I don't necessarily mean in terms of how one might market a film or or all of that. I mean, where am I trying to stand in terms of... uh, being the gateway between the story and what someone following the story would need to know in order for it to make sense obviously books can be more expansive in that way and they can be more internal in that way Uh, whereas in film you're really getting what what people are doing and what they're saying and sometimes that means that certain kinds of exposition either have to go unsaid or or a screenwriter has to contrive ways of getting that exposition into dialogue (laughs) and and i'm someone who really hates that kind of dialogue. I don't want to write dialogue that's for the audience. I, I would prefer to be as naturalistic as possible with dialogue, even if the film itself isn't a naturalistic film. And so that's something that's, that always happens in an adaptation for me, is I wrestle a lot with giving myself permission that the audience of the film will be confused at times because I'm not going to write that kind of dialogue. It sometimes comes up in ADR when you realize, when you've seen you know, a few cuts of a film and you realize, oh, the audience really does need to know this one particular thing in order for the rest of this to to, to make a kind of intuitive sense to them. I'll begrudgingly <laughs> write a line of ADR. Um, and, and 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 now I put it in my contracts so that I, I write the ADR really? instead of someone else doing it. It could be quite disconcerting to have all of the dialogue in a film pitched toward one level of of naturalism, say, and then five lines of ADR completely undo that. (laughs) And so I try to do all of the ADR myself um, in order to prevent that. But every once in a while, there is a line that there is just no getting around. It has to convey the kind of exposition in the the way that a book might. And those really stick out to me. I hope they don't for an audience.
0: There's exposition, and then there's the inner monologue too where if you're adapting material that's first person you're inside that character's head the entire time and with one line or two lines you can know exactly what that character is thinking or feeling and depending on the point of view of the film and whether or not there's any narration you may again have to contrive certain scenarios to portray dramatically what in the book might be one eloquent sentence or two or a paragraph how do you deal with that
2: I think it's something that some screenwriters never learn, but I think m- most of us learn it f- sort of in the middle of our careers somehow unless we're direct unless we also direct is 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 what it really means to speak in a visual language. And I've been getting a little bit better, I hope, every time I write a film and certainly i've I've started in the last decade of my career to work with really terrific directors and and really terrific actors and I pay very close attention to how they articulate what they need a good script to do. Um, and I think it's, you know, with Luca, what in you know, particular, you know, he and I have done three films together working on our fourth. I, I feel like I've come to really understand how he's looking at a script from a visual direction. And the script is looking at, at the film from a textual direction and how we can meet in the middle. And I think that's, Often the answer, um, and maybe we don't arrive at the image that does what you're describing uh, until sometimes until we're on set, sometimes until we're location scouting. But I do try to do a lot of that work as much as possible myself by coding this exposition um, and emotional exposition in, in 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 a kind of visual language. So I tend to to be able to do that because I do a lot of research um, when. Uh, I have a project that is set in a very specific place. I'll go there on my own dime if I have to I will spend as much time um, inside of the, the research as I possibly can because usually those images are are there somewhere to just pick up and utilize um, if you're patient enough and observant enough and, and know what kind of thing you're looking for. So I, I feel like uh, you know having studied fiction and now, you know, having two decades of a screenwriting career behind me, that I have—that is a language I have learned. I have learned a visual language, in the way that that um, I haven't been able to crack French or Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's been a—it's been a fa- fascinating journey, and it's gotten me to a point where I now feel like uh, it's—you know—it's probably time if I'm going to direct, it's probably time to do that because I now feel like I have the tools, um, and I've had a film school. It just hasn't been a traditional one, and it's taken. 15 years, but it's, um, but it's now really sunk in for me. And so, so it's the conversations I have with Luca now, for instance, um, are very different from the conversations we
0: originally had because I can, I can come closer to where he's, where he stands in his work. Well, speaking more about Luca and terrific actors, a bigger splash, your first collaboration with him is a remake of the swimming pool, Jacques Duret film from the sixties. And I read an interview where you said at first you weren't sure why someone would want to remake this film. And you (laughs) explained that to Luca, and that was kind of what he wanted to hear. He said, now we can disassemble it and make something more interesting out of it. So this is getting back to your point about a remake and taking the liberty or having the license to evolve or devolve. Was that the project where your eyes were open to the fact that you could do that? You could be sort of maybe that brazen with the material. Absolutely. I
2: had told myself early on that if I... End up with three films with my name on it that I'm not proud of, that I would leave, that I would quit this career. I I had come from, uh, you know, I was teaching at university and I had a life I really loved. And I very reluctantly gave it up to come to Los Angeles to try screenwriting. And at that point I had a manager, I had an agent, I had sold a script, I had open a blind script commitment from a studio. And even that, you know, it took that that many advances of my career to convince me to actually move to Los Angeles, and and so I came there thinking I've left a life I really love. Uh, I will give this everything I have, but if I end up with three movies produced with my name on it that that I'm not proud of, I'll I'll stop. And I had had my third one <laughs> come out, um, and just at that last possible moment, I I got this call from Luca. A man i'd never met. i had i had loved i am love in the cinema obviously um and i was so excited that someone like luca wanted to talk about a project and that collaboration has turned into a series of collaborations that really saved saved me from the brink it really saved me from leaving leaving this career because luca wanted my full uh, sensibility, my full intellect. He wanted me to participate in the entire process, not just the writing process. The conversations we had. The, the you know, literally a month of spending eight hours a day every day together discussing everything about the Duray film, everything about how we wanted to pivot away from it, about the character psychology, about the visual grammar the film would have, about the costuming, about the casting, everything. So that when I went off to write the first draft, I understood. Uh, How to be a kind of midwife for his vision. And I so enjoyed that process. And when he finally received the script and read it, he called me and just said, this is everything I was hoping it would be. I'm a fan of the script. Let's make this movie. And, you know, after that, there weren't a lot of revisions for Luca because we had front loaded that process. Uh, it wasn't really until the actors came in, and this is a big part of Lucas' process and has become a big part of mine, not only when I work with him, but when I work independently of him. Is the actors then talk to us about how they read the script, how they read the text, how they find a space between the text and subtext that's comfortable. And sometimes that means adjusting one or the other or both. And it's a wonderful process to do that together the director, the writer, and the actors. And we've had, I think we've had a great deal of really meaningful experience on each of the films we've done by opening that door up to the to the cast to come in and start to talk to
0: us and other characters. Different scenario with your next project with Luca, another remake. I'm going to say that maybe not as many people familiar with The Swimming Pool as Suspiria. This is a cult horror classic. Most real film nerds I know revere this film. And I'm guessing that disassembling it, though I like that word in the context of Argento, seems to happen to some characters <laughs> in the film. I'm guessing disassembling the original wasn't exactly where you were starting from with Suspiria? Or was well, it? It, it? Well, it was, it was interesting. While we were working on A Bigger Splash, Ludwig
2: confided in me that this was one of the films of his life, Suspiria. But he had always had the ambition to to remake it. And when we started to talk about how that might work, thematically and dramatically. He was, he, he was very clear that he wanted the remake to be set in 77. The, film, the original film came out. And what struck us both as the real opportunity of that remake um, was to take the sort of hermetically sealed fairy tale box of the Argento film and just simply open the box to what was really going on in the world at the time. And you know, my first question to him was, uh, can, can I write this coven of witches as, um, as, a, as a functioning, albeit somehow struggling, community that has its own sort of sense of politics in contrast to, or in some ways, in comparison to you know, the very tattered and aggressive and acidic politics of the day, of autumn, spring, and, and everything that was happening in Germany at the time? And he was, of course, you know, he really wanted to let all of that into the film. And so I understood it more as a period film in a way than a, than a horror film in terms of just nailing down a, a space for this coven to exist in that made a kind of organic sense. Um, I wanted everything from the witchcraft to the dance and everything that sort of feels, you know, a bit decorative in Argento's film. Uh, I wanted them to, to take on some, some kind of real naturalistic substance in our in our version of it so i i you know i guess with that particular remake we both left it behind but also with you know holding holding hands with it sort of at a distance um because i you know i do think it's a beautiful terrible piece of art you know a beautiful and you know i don't mean terrible in a critical way I mean terrible in the sense that it's full of terrible things i just think it's a beautiful um nightmare Uh, but as, as sometimes happens with me, when I work on an adaptation, I, I am a slightly more practical and logical person. So, you know, maybe Luca knew that it would be interesting to sort of deploy me specifically as opposed to another screenwriter into, into such a chaotic nightmarish world, because I would want to try to make some kind of order out of it, uh, which is, you know, ends up being
0: what we did. Yeah. I was struck when I saw it thinking back on, My first viewing of Suspiria, which was almost 20 years ago at this point, didn't see it until actually I was doing this show, and it was one of the blind spots for me in in horror that I knew I needed to to see and we needed to consider. But like so many horror films, there may be real-world issues on the filmmaker's mind, but if so, they seem allegorical. And to your point with the previous answer... With Suspiria set in 1977, those real-world anxieties are front and center. Not only within the time and place it's set—you mentioned Germany in 1977, the tumultuous time there—but then even within the time the film was being released. I was looking back at my notes when I saw it, and you know that opening scene and people questioning whether or not the woman's delusional. And I have the this phrase "believe women" in my head, and later a character actually you know verbalizes that and. I guess what I'm curious about is the approach based on what you said in terms of research being so important to you and knowing that you're setting this film in the 70s in that specific context, but also wanting to make it relevant to modern viewers, that that balancing act and and just how much work did you have to put in before you actually put end to paper, so to speak?
2: I put a lot of work in and I don't know whether I had to or not. I, I felt I had to, to, to reach a certain level of just confidence that I could write characters who were first of all all of those women do you know what I mean sort of convincingly and, and, and in a way that was that was nuanced and it wasn't overly protective of them as characters because of my own insecurity about about not being inside writing from inside of a community of women and also that just on the on the side of the, the art in the film the dance you know I, I was writing dialogue for, a master choreographer and dancers who had been dancing all of their lives. And, and um, I, I don't take those things lightly. And so my, my research for that film took me to some very interesting places. There's a, a choreographer in Berlin called Sasha Baltz, who was very kind to open her, really her entire life to me. I f- shadowed her, attended her studio, attended rehearsals, talked to her, her dancers her co- in her company, spoke with her at length, uh, not just about dance but about uh, dance in Germany. Uh, you know I, I, I had the privilege of, of really having a lot of access to a very specific world her world that that informed the film quite a lot. you know I only I only researched read and watched things that had really had been made by women and I, I, I don't I don't want that to sound like a kind of um, posture because I I really think that one of the great, gifts uh, and opportunities of this career of filmmaking is to expand out through the lens of empathy my view of everything and our view of everything and Anitza's view of, of everything. And, and so I, I get both very um, nervous about taking jobs where I will be the steward of a story that is primarily about women. And Bones and All is another film that is the main character is a woman really who, who is coming into her the fullness of her identity, I get very concerned about those jobs, uh, but also very excited about them because I know how much I stand to learn if I am being very, very careful at listening very hard and being very um, open to my own blind spots that I have you know, like, at the start of a project like this. And so Suspiria was really the first project where the research, I just didn't want it to end because I was, I just felt like I was. It was somehow a very ennobling way to spend my time you know researching these these historical subjects and artistic subjects that i had never really wrestled with and trying to do it through the lens of a gender which is not my own and hoping that i that i landed it in a way that that felt uh reasonable and so it was that that project with luca i was so happy to have his of course his mentorship during that project but also his friendship because i really needed I really needed somebody um, going through that process with me that was also a bit like exacerbated by it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Until we figured out exactly what we wanted to say.
1: When you dance the
0: dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. I
1: feel like I'm not even here yet. The dump looks incredible. One, two, three. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor.
0: The collaboration with Luca does continue with Bones and all, and unlike the two previous films we've talked about, not a remake of a film, adaptation of a novel, 2015 novel, I believe take us back to that moment when this first got brought to you. Or you became involved and you wrestled with that material. What what hurdles did you know were in front of you? This was sent to me out of the blue by someone I never met, and
2: at that point in my career, I, I was mostly just trying to work with friends. You know, I, I I have this motto that I want to work on things that scare me with people that don't, and if I can just do that over and over again for the rest of my career, I'll be very I'll be really happy. But every once in a while, a book finds you because someone someone really thinks that it's a it's a match that really is is an organic one and and this one caught me off guard because this is a ostensibly you know you'd have to call this a young adult novel and it's about a young woman who is just sort of coming into a real understanding of who she is and i read the book and i thought the book was wonderful and very surprising and if I hadn't just done Suspiria, I might have been less inclined to, to have a conversation with the producer about a Teresa Park. but I felt a little bit emboldened by that experience. And so I talked to her and I said, look, I, I, I so appreciate that you thought of me for this and that you think I might be a good fit for the material. But I just want to make sure that, that the author is, is permissive of this because she, this feels like, even though it's a book about a young woman who is a cannibal and it, and it exists in a kind of also in a kind of fairy tale idiom I, I it did feel personal to me on some level so i wanted to make sure that the author would embrace the idea of not just a man writing it but specifically me given given the, the other things on my resume so we had a wonderful conversation camille and i uh about the book and she said i'd like to talk to you one more time and i'd like to talk to you about the subtext of the book and i wish i was certain in my <laughs> in my, um, I don't know, in my confidence about the situation that she was talking about the feminist subtext of the book. And so I spent the week between those two conversations really thinking hard about uh, and reading and and sort of, um, you know, exploring sort of uh, feminist theory about body image and all and, you know, all of these things that I thought would, would help me better articulate uh, a point of view when we talked. But she really surprised me by saying, in our next conversation, the thing that's most important to me is that the story in the film is a vegan story. And boy, I, that was not what I was expecting her to say, because this is a novel where characters don't have a choice. They must eat other people. And so it led to a really interesting conversation where I mostly listened and just tried to really understand how a story about young cannibals could be a vegan <laughs> a vegan story. And she really won me over. And so I spent a lot of my time both preparing for the first draft and writing the first draft understanding how i could amplify that you know that point of view from the book which it's there if you're if you know to look for it but i wanted to make sure that the film was even more audacious about about that and so some of the scenes are fully invented uh, entirely well not entirely but to, to service her that point of view while also telling these simultaneous stories in the horror and the, the sort of romance genre. And it was a great, fun puzzle to try to figure out is how do you get these things to to marry one another in a way that seems um, reasonable and also even a little bit lyrical, but without the ability to use a kind of fairy tale idiom to try to tell it in a kind of naturalistic way. It was a very complicated tone, this film, and, and every project I do with Luca, I feel like when I finished uh, A Bigger Splash, I thought, I will never write something with as complicated a tone as this. And then Suspiria came along. I thought, I will never write something <laughs> with as complicated a tone. And then this came along. <laughs> and so I don't, I don't know what's next,
0: uh, but I I, uh, feel, <laughs> I feel really excited about it. Sounds like you're on the right path, considering what you said about your studies at Iowa and how it prepared you as part of the Writer's Workshop. The, the sanctity, at least with source material that is based on a novel the of thematic intent what a luxury that must have been for you to be able to have conversations like that with the author
2: absolutely and sometimes i i found in my career sometimes that conversation is really helpful and sometimes it isn't and i've been very lucky i've never done an adaptation where i felt that the author of the original work was anything other than pleased and i i do try to be a good as I said before, a good steward of these things, and and that means doing a lot of listening up front and and, and asking the right kind of questions, and not having the author have to be have to teach me. You know, I, I I sort of want to earn you know kind of trust and respect by doing a lot of the 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 early work and and the um the the, home, the basically the homework myself, so that I'm not asking the author to to defend the book. You know, I I feel like the first conversation with an author. It really is. The onus is on me to defend the book, <laughs> so that so that that trust can bloom in a kind of organic way. But yes, I, I if I had followed my initial life plan, which was to be writing novels, I, I would be missing such an important and cherished part of my life, which is all of these collaborations with with other writers, with directors, with actors, with designers, you know, with producers, even even sometimes with studio executives. <laughs> I, I sometimes cherish those interactions. Uh, but I, I just think filmmaking is, is so collaborative in a way that what I had trained to do, isn't that I really count my count, my fortunes, um, that that gets to be my daily life is thinking about and talking about ideas almost every waking hour for years at a time. It's just wonderful.
0: It strikes me as ironic, actually, if you consider the importance that you've placed on collaboration and the rewards you find in it considering that writing has to be one of the most solitary artistic processes
2: it's true but the way the way that my career is played out
0: and that's what i'm
2: i'm so thankful for is the right the time i'm actually alone writing um compared to the time that i'm speaking with luca about a film in prep you know i'm producing a lot more now you know on set in the editing in casting sessions, in the ADR sessions. I mean, really, the, the solitary writing part of it is is maybe a fifth of how I spend my my filmmaking time, so to speak.
0: We're talking in connection with the Refocus Film Festival happening in Iowa City, an entire festival devoted to new or recent films that are adaptations. And I'd be remiss if I did not ask you for a little bit more detail about your time at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, really a, a famed program here one of the things the university of iowa is most known for i grew up in iowa but i think my first exposure to it or the the moment i became aware of its significance probably was actually when i saw and i was way too young to see this movie but i became obsessed with it one of the movies that really turned me into a cinephile when i was a kid was watching the world according to garp which isn't that movie a Oh, why, do, why don't why do people talk about it? I don't know. It seems forgotten when you talk about George Roy Hill, when you talk about Robin Williams, and I've always kind of been obsessed with it. And of course, then later, I read the original Irving, and you find out that John Irving also studied at the Iowa Writers' Workshop under Kurt Vonnegut. You're thinking, this sounds like the greatest place <laughs> on earth. I'd love to hear more about your your time and experience and what you took away from it. Um, one of my favorite
2: stories about my time at Iowa was the apartment I rented, um, had been the apartment that Nelson Algren had lived in when he was at the workshop, and apparently he was good enough friends with Kurt Vonnegut that Kurt Vonnegut would sometimes come over. And so this was an old apartment, and all the fixtures were the original fixtures. And I got, I had, I got, I was tickled to no end thinking every time I was on the toilet that it was a toilet that Kurt Vonnegut had also sat on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely. So my, my time at the university at the Writers' Workshop. I mean, I I can't really stress enough that I never considered screenwriting as a possible future. It just wasn't something that was on not not only mine, but really almost any one of the workshop's radar. It's very different today, I think, because of the way that um, independent cinema... I mean, I was in a workshop in the mid-90s, the way that independent cinema exploded sort of after that. And also television has changed so much. You know we, you know we hadn't back then even really had the benefit of the sopranos on you know, on our radars so it just wasn't something that any of us uh, was thinking we would want to do which seems you know as i said before i think it was really helpful that i didn't go to film school um i think it's really helpful that i had the training that i did which is so both intuitive in some ways and counterintuitive when you cross the line and start thinking about writing for a visual medium but what I did do was I, I studied so hard and worked so hard at such a variety of kind of shapes of narrative. I was very interested in 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 sort of Middle Eastern fiction and, and European fiction, and I was you know I was reading a lot of my my peers at the writers' workshop were sort of in their in their Raymond Carver mode, and I was I was not at the time. I was I was looking at all kinds of you know, sort of crazy ways that different cultures employ and deploy narrative. So when I made the transition from writing fiction to writing for the screen, I had all these crazy shapes in my head already of different ways narrative could work, all these really odd, subversive ways that people had tried to use narrative. And I fear that if I had gone to a screenwriting program instead, I would have learned that one three-act structure shape. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I I ran cross-country when I was in school and... When you do that for enough time, you start to measure distance in 3.1 miles all the time because that's, that's, that's the lengthy run in a race and cross-country. And I feel like if I'd gone to a screenwriting program and learned that, that three-act structure, that I would subconsciously always measure narrative by those three acts over and over again. And sometimes I choose to do it because it's appropriate. But in, in a lot of projects, I put it aside. I, you know, when people start talking to me about writing A stories and B stories and television, I, I guess I intellectually understand what they mean, but I've never felt that. I've never reached for that tool. I've never thought it was the best idea. And, and, and so I think my time at Iowa ended up being the perfect education for the very surprising
0: career I ended up having. Last question for you. You're going to weigh in on a long-running debate between myself and my co-host. Oh, good. Of course, if you don't agree with me, I'll pretend this audio doesn't exist. Oh, okay, we'll just cut right, this part. Enough. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical to get at the crux of it here. Let's pretend you're not someone who's been hired to adapt Suspiria. You're just a movie guy. Big movie fan. You've never seen Argento's film, but you've always wanted to. And you plan to because you know that a new version of Suspiria is coming out. Do you watch the original first? Or do you watch the new one and then go back and see Argento's? I think that
2: you watch the original first um i'll tell you why it's i i think that for a couple of reasons one i think that the original is it's just such a, a blast from the id do you know what i mean that is that is not overly controlled or curated i mean the film is very it's stylistically it's very curated but i think the story it really is operating out of a out of a kind of wild disorganization, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think if someone, you know, if the, if if the remake, if it's true that one of the things we tried to do in the remake was was organize that blast of the air that is the original into uh, a, a sort of a narrative where that was controlled enough that you one could talk about things like politics. I think I would want to see the detonation before, you know, the Mm -hmm. the sort of explosion first and then understand how years later, um, a bunch of filmmakers sort of picked up the kind of wreckage after that
0: explosion and tried to build something. Okay. So, um, take out the unique concoction that Argento's film is, and let's just say, generally speaking, when talking about source material and the remake, whether a book first, whether a play first, whether a film first, do you still tend to want to go back to the original before you consider the new. Because I'll say in my context, as a film critic, I want to go the other way, especially with novels. I want to see the film, consider the film completely as its own universe where I'm not comparing it to anything. I I think I'm being fairer to the filmmaker and, and screenwriter, the director and screenwriter if I am considering that film as its own unique piece. And I'd rather go back to the novel then, which in most cases is probably by nature of it being a novel going to expand the universe. I'd rather expand the universe than watch the film and be thinking the whole time about the things that were taken from it.
2: But I would only worry that that expansion can happen in a more limited way when when you've seen a film, particularly if it's a good film. Because I think once you have the visual grammar of a film in your it's going to be really hard for you to put it aside for the the way that uh, the novelist say has built out that world differently through words. I mean, obviously visual images are much more powerful than text. and so I would only worry that it's that that it is a an intellectual fallacy, the idea that you could back out of a film's vision in order to then go into a book's vision and appreciate it just as much. I, it doesn't mean that 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 it can't be done that way it just you know Mm -hmm. i'm somebody who i will never see the lord of the rings films even though i've been told they're very good because i worked so hard as a as a teenager building my visual understanding of those worlds based on tolkien's prose that i don't want to give that up do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so easily and so for me i would always go the other way i would rather build the world myself by reading the book with the author's textual help have that experience and then know that it's going to be completely subsumed by, you know, by the visual experience of a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can I can respect your point of view, but I don't know that I could share it because I, <laughs> I just say training and the primacy of the book in my yeah. life. You know, if you walked into my apartment, you would see ten times as many books as films. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I,
0: I might be, you know, the wrong person to to agree with you. That was such a smart, eloquent answer. It's too bad nobody will hear it, David. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh thank you so much for your insights on that for your insights on adapting for your time and best of luck with bones and all thank you so much it was a lovely conversation I, and i love your show thank you thank you not gonna be like that we don't have many options either you eat you off yourself or you lock yourself up in there
2: we're dangerous one of us Chicks teach me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but
1: we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go,
0: go, go, go. My thanks again to screenwriter David Kajanik for that wonderful chat. Bones and All is currently playing in wide release. More adaptation talk coming up. Producer Sam Van Halgren and I share some of our favorite book to film adaptations of the last several years. <laughs>
2: Cut my eye like a bird sign
1: Touch and connect like FaceTime. Face You come and give me all the right signs I'ma make it double, i am going go sign Break your back on the baseline. Sweet dance so I just the right time. Girl, you too bad And saw so she moves Two sips of a car juice You stop making movies, it'll break your mother's heart I don't know what to do anymore. You do what your heart says you have to.
0: That's from the trailer for Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, which expanded into wide release this week. Next week here on the show, Josh and I will have a review of The Fablemans, along with some talk about whatever else we catch up with between now and then. We'll also share results from the current film spotting poll inspired by The Fablemans. We're asking who made the best autobiographical film horror films of the last decade, some really good options here. Pedro Almodovar, Alfonso Cuaron, Lee Isaac Chung, Greta Gerwig, Joanna Hogg, and Richard Linklater. Maybe you'll want to write in Spielberg after you catch up with the Fablemans. That's fine. You can do that and leave a comment at filmspotting.com. Net. A couple of quick plugs over on the Next Picture Show, our sister podcast, it's part two of their McDonough's discontented duos pairing, The Banshees of Inna Sharon, one of the best films of the year, paired with McDonough's debut film, In Bruges, which also co-starred Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleason. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday or wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that in under two months, Film Spotting will be in Brooklyn, live at the Bell House, Saturday, January 14th. We've got a great group of guests coming, including Dana Stevens from Slate, Matt Singer, Allison Wilmore, Griffin Newman from Blank Check, Sam Van Halgren will be there, myself, and Josh. More information is available at filmspotting.net slash events.
1: Has anyone taken my novel? No. no why? Amy, you've got it. No, I haven't. That's a lie. No, it isn't. I haven't got it. I don't know where it is, and I don't...
0: Help ah! me! Ah! Ah! you ah! me! I ah! burnt ah! it up! I burnt your book! I told you I'd make you pay! And I did! Ah! That's from Greta Gerwig's Little Women, a recent film adaptation, a masterful one, too, that we somehow didn't get to when producer Sam Van Halgren and I went to Iowa City back in October to take part in Film Scenes, refocus film festival. I have a pretty good excuse as much as I love it. Didn't want to talk about a film when I hadn't read the source material first. It's true. I've never read Little Women. The festival, as we mentioned earlier on the show, is dedicated to new films, many currently playing the festival circuit that fit a very loose definition of the word adaptation. We had a pretty blank slate when it came to the subject of our talk, only that it had to have something to do with adaptations. So. We decided to start our conversation with how we went about narrowing down that very broad subject, along with our controversial, very anti Josh Larson stance on the best way to consume adaptations, at least what order they should go in when it comes to film adaptations. Here's that conversation. Thanks to everyone who made it out and everyone at Film Scene and the Refocus Film Festival. We just got into town, unfortunately, not able to yeah. partake in all of the great screenings here. But, Sam, a homecoming for me, an Iowa kid, and fitting that you're here because my regular co host, Josh Larson, couldn't join me here today, but back. Oh, I'm not going to say exactly when, but many years ago when I was doing a precursor, didn't know what podcasts were then, but I was doing a precursor to film spotting. As a grad student, I was on KRUI. I I started an early movie blog. You and I would go back and forth about movies. That was an early precursor to film spotting. I've gone to the bullpen, told you (laughs) about here you are up on stage to talk about adaptation. Sam, the uh, original Co host and the co founder with me of this show. And we've also been preparing our whole lives for it, I think. We were English majors.
1: <laughs> That's right. I was going to say. Yeah, we're, we're book lovers first. We should know that. Yeah, if
0: we can't <laughs> yeah. flex some muscles, some intellectual muscles here today, <laughs> right. then we're, we're doing something wrong. But, the
1: bard will be invoked yeah, today. Yeah, definitely. Yes.
0: We will get to the bard. So. Film scene, Andrew approached us, kinda gave us carte blanche to talk about whatever we wanted, as long as it tied back in some way to movies and to source material, to adaptations. And we had so much to choose from, obviously, entire history of cinema really. <laughs> how do we how do we narrow it down? And Sam, we did we did manage to find a way. And maybe you could set that up just a little bit, kind of what we what we wanted to do? Well,
1: yeah, I think, you know, for us, it was about adaptations of books we are familiar with, first of all. But I think, and maybe I'll let you get into this, it allowed us to sort of get on our soapbox a little bit because Adam and I are uh, of one mind on the fact that maybe the best way to think about books or the relationship between books or source material and movies is that it's better to we'll watch the movie first.
0: Yeah, that's that's <laughs> our stance on it, anyway. and it, it, <laughs> it stems from an argument that we've actually had with my co-host, Josh, and, and Sam has been kind of sitting on the sidelines uh, of, and he's had to hear us. But pushing you back out. in the ring. But yeah. you're pushing right. me back in the ring. Josh is one of those guys, not that he gets a chance to read every book that a movie is based on before we review it on the show. But if he can, and especially if it's a book that has been on his radar or a classic that he's always wanted to read, that's his impetus to go down that path. And I always say, if I know we're going to review it, I'd rather wait, watch the movie first, and then potentially go back to the source. And Sam, you maybe didn't start that way, but, but you have- come over to my way of thinking
1: well yeah i think you know that there is the orthodoxy you know it's just like you you read a book and then you see the movie the the book is superior and i grew up with a pretension about books and um and the, the correct order to do it but then i found you know you you believe that you should read a book first before you watch a movie I felt like, well, if there's a great movie that's based on a great book, well, there's another great book I'll never read because I watched the movie. And so <laughs> I just love that I'm going to be a part of this conversation that is all about my journey because uh, I have gone on <laughs> a journey here. So this is going back to 2018. I don't know how many of you remember um, or, or caught up with uh, Jeremy Sunier's Hold the Dark, um, which is somewhere in Netflix. Yeah. You know, And that's where you just – I have no, no sense of how many people have seen this movie. Sunier, the director of Blue Ruin and Green Room, great great films that were um, Sunier originals, his scripts, his direction. Hold the Dark based on a 2014 novel by William Garaldi, And the movie, I'll refresh your memories, Jeffrey Wright's a reclusive wolf expert. He's uh, invited to a remote Alaskan village where wolves are encroaching on the human's turf. A boy has gone missing. The mystery only deepens once Wright gets there, suggesting at the existence possibly of werewolves, of um, some adult brother-sister incest, perhaps, clearly the movie was about something, and I didn't know what it was about. And I was frustrated by it, so I left that movie frustrated. And it, it honestly occurred to me like a revelation. I could read the book. I could read the book. Even though I saw the movie, I the could answers, read the book. Behold. Maybe the movie. So it turns out the, the book was no more forthcoming about what what the themes actually were or wasn't literal. But I got to spend another week or so thinking about the movie while I read the book. And wrestling with the book and the movie, I ended up coming up with some fun ideas about maybe this is about the origins of myth, how isolated communities and close proximity to nature are maybe the best contemporary models of the ancient communities where myths and superstitions are born. And I was like, I love that idea. I love that, that maybe the movie that good or bad is that I had the opportunity to, to dig into what those ideas were. But mostly I came away with, uh, you know, the feeling like watching a movie and then reading the book is really enjoyable and a really enjoyable way to think about the art of adaptation.
0: Yeah. Well said for me, it's a little more practical though. It's also more academic. I, I, have not been able to make as much time for reading as you. I haven't been as diligent. And when I do have time to read, I don't know if you allow this or not, Sam, I'm probably spending more time with audiobooks. Because I have, then I yeah. can I can multitask. I can, you know, I can at least be in the car or I can be sure. in the shower or something and be knocking out a book at the same time.
1: You've been to Spring Green. My commute is yeah. uh, one minute to the store, one minute to the school, one right. minute to the dance studio. Right. So, no, there's no commute for me. Yeah.
0: So, I'm more of an audiobook guy at this point and maybe begrudgingly, but I am. And I'm usually going in for nonfiction, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, just again, time, you talked about kids, other factors in your lives. It's, it's hard to. Devote the mental energy, especially when you have something like film spotting as an output for all of this creative thought. It's hard to devote the mental energy to something that really requires you to pay that much close attention and, and be lost in this imaginative world. So I am spending a little more time with nonfiction, and, and you've certainly read uh, more uh, stuff recently than I have, but it kind of goes back, probably originally for me the first movie that ever really had a huge impact on me. I've talked about it a little bit on the show was the world. According to Garp saw it way too young and, and I was obsessed with it and watched it a hundred times as a kid. And then later, not too long after that, I realized that, well, it's based on this book written by John Irving, and I should seek out the book. If I love the movie so much, I should seek out the book. and it's a six hundred page book, so of course, it has more in it than the movie does. Of course, the the movie has changed things and it's alighted things. And I, I thought, okay, I love this world so much. I'm really enjoying reading the book and now seeing the world expand. And so that's that's how I viewed it, even though I wasn't thinking about it in those terms back then. From a practical standpoint, though, also doing this show and talking about films, doing film criticism every week. I go back to 2007 and I saw the movie Atonement based on the uh, Ian McEwen, is Mm -hmm. it the novel? And I hadn't read it. I'm at the Toronto Film Festival. The movie's premiering and I see it and I am just gobsmacked by this film. I am totally blown away by it. And I, of course, expected everyone in the theater and all my colleagues to have the exact same experience I did. And that didn't happen. Scott which is,
1: Tobias read the book, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, of <laughs> course he did. And, and
0: so I, I started reading some reviews that I think overall people were positive on it, but some were a little more middling. They weren't as enthusiastic as I was. And what I did notice was more often than not, the people that were a little lukewarm on it had read the book. And I do think on some level, especially with a a film like that, a story like that that has a reveal to it yeah if you if you know that's coming, you're watching the movie through a completely different lens, and they weren't having that same they weren't along for the same ride that I was yep. with the filmmaker in this case, Joe Wright, so that kind of cemented it, I said okay, if I do have a chance to, to read the source material first, I, I honestly probably would prefer to wait. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach these as films first. I'm going to let the, the filmmaker, the screenwriter, sort of take me on that journey. I'm going to have that experience and we'll, we'll go from there. Of course, I also note when I think about my, maybe one of my all-time favorite films and certainly one of my all-time favorite adaptations, something like Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye from the 70s with, with Elliot Gould, that's an adaptation where if you aren't familiar with Philip Marlowe from either the Raymond Chandler stories Mm -hmm. or from the films, of course, and it's a combination of both that Altman's playing with, then that film is kind of meaningless. I mean, it's still enjoyable on on a certain level, but at the same time, he's playing with the myth of the hard-boiled detective and the myth specifically of that detective that Without that source material, the movie really wouldn't be the same experience at all. So coming at it from a few different angles, but generally, we are of the opinion that we tend to like to wait, and we like to go to the, to the book second. Now, we wanted to get an expert opinion on this, <laughs> and I had a chance just about a week ago to talk with uh, David Kajanik, who was here for opening night at the Ingler. Bones and All, the premier film here at the festival, Uh, another collaboration, another adaptation uh, with Luca Guadagnino. And I wanted to get his opinion. Of course, I was was sure he was going to agree with me somehow. (laughs) I, I don't know why I was so misguided, especially as someone who has a background as a novelist and came here to the Iowa Writers Workshop. But I thought for sure he'd agree with me. I gave him my thoughts. I explained to him, Sam, as well as I could, the way we approach it, why we like to go to the book second or the source material second, try to expand that universe, and got this response.
2: I would only worry that that, that expansion can happen in a more limited way when, when you've seen a film, particularly if it's a good film. Because I think... Once you have the visual grammar of a film in your mind, it's going to be really hard for you to put it aside for the the way that the novelist, say, has built out that world differently through words. I mean, obviously, visual images are much more powerful than text, and so I would only worry that it's a, an intellectual fallacy, the idea that you could back out of a film's vision in order to then go into a book's vision and appreciate it just as much, I, I, it doesn't mean that, that that it can't be done that way. It just, you know, I'm mm-hmm. like somebody who I will never see the Lord of the Rings films, even though I've been told they're very good, because I worked so hard as a, as a teenager building my visual understanding of those worlds based on Tolkien's prose, that I don't want to give that up, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean, Yet. so easily. And so for me, I would always go the other way. I would rather build the world myself by reading the book with the author's textual help, have that experience and then know that it's going to be completely subsumed by you know, by the visual experience of a film mm-hmm. so i can respect your point of view but i don't know that i could share it because <laughs> i i just say training and the primacy of the book in my yeah. life you know if you walked into my apartment you would see 10 times as many books as films <laughs> You know I mean, uh-huh. so I, I might be you know the wrong person to to agree with you
0: so i just asked the wrong guy Basically, right? I asked the wrong guy. So
1: <clears throat>
0: we did not get support from David Kajan.
1: I will say I also have more books than movies in my house. I just haven't read all of them. I mean, exactly. I imagine David probably has. David I also
0: is... have never read Lord of the Rings.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love the. I love his point. Uh, But it actually helped clarify something for me that, you know, he talks about the visual grammar. Once it's been established, how do you erase that? I'm like, give me the visual grammar. Actually, I love that. I don't think I have an incredibly rich visual imagination. That's not why I read books, to get lost in the the visual space that's being created by the writers. And maybe that's the kind of writing I like reading too. So Peter Jackson, you do the visuals for me. I'm okay with that. I read books to fall under the spell of language. So that's always been the case for me. So it was actually really helpful for David to say this, but it has occurred to me as I've gone on this journey of reading books after watching films is that that part is taking care of it for me. It actually adds pleasure for me. That's... That's my individual experience. But, you know, I, I want to fall under the spell of a book um, because of its language, not necessarily because of the world. It's the visual world it's building.
0: So if you're familiar at all with our show, you know that it was built off of top five lists. And that's pretty much what we're going to do here with these adaptations. We talked about trying to narrow it down a little bit. We did decide to focus on books that we had read, at least least (laughs) if we're going to talk about them, lead the conversation, probably a good idea that we've actually read it. And we're going to focus specifically on recent adaptations. So recent film adaptations from different types of material that we are particularly fond of. And Sam, you are going to start us off here and maybe you can set up a little bit more what what we're going to kind of focus on, or at least what, what the what the unique hook is, I suppose, with each one of Well, I of think these just picks.
1: that, you know, partly it's, I get a chance to talk about a couple of recent films that I'm like, I wanted more love on film spotting. I'm sitting there doing the editing. I don't get to have a voice here. So at least two films... My favorites of the last couple of years that happened to be adaptations, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about them. Um, the other thing is I think we wanted to find adaptations that were approaching adaptation in different ways. So whether that's deepening the material, organizing it in a different way than the source material, um, there's a couple of examples of adaptations that – at least one we'll bring up, maybe two, that so significantly improve on the source material, it's tempting to imagine it was fueled by spite alone. It's just like, uh, okay, that's a neat idea. Let me, let me take it from here. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't the case, as no. we'll hear, but um, there, there's that as well. Lead us off. All right, should I start? So I'm going to start with Nomadland. Uh, by Chloe Zhao, or um, the the adaptation she did of Jessica Bruder's 2017 nonfiction book of the same name. The book's subtitle, "Surviving America in the 21st Century." It's based on three years of reporting that Bruder did between 2014 and 2017, mostly on the road. It's a great piece of narrative nonfiction, beautifully written. She documents this subculture of mostly retirees who, having retired or reaching a retirement age, couldn't actually afford to retire. This is all coming in the um, in the wake of the Great Recession that took place between 07 and 09, the bursting of the U.S. housing bubble. And so, what many of these people do that she profiles or have done is unload the thing that is drowning them, which is their house. And then they bought mobile homes or trailers, and they hit the road where the work is and when it is. Um, whether that's Amazon distribution centers, which you see in the movie, uh, national parks, sugar beet processing plants, so the richness of the of the book is is the profile she does of several memorable people, including two figures who prominently play roles in Zhao's film, playing themselves or versions of themselves, which I think is a very clever angle of Zhao's. So for her adaptation, Zhao invents the character francis mcdormand's character fern but i think crucially what she does is open her film with a startling fact i'm sure you remember this adam how in 2011 due to the recession a u.s gypsum plant based in empire nevada shut down after 88 years within six months the entire town's zip code had been discontinued it was a company town 88 years and suddenly it's a ghost town so McDormand's fern along with her husband were residents of Empire he he's died recently and she's been loosed from 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 her town Anything from for, everything yeah. ev- everything so here's where I think Zhao elevates the original work into the realm of art so while she retains the book's emphasis on economic losses and the consequences of the recession the stories of what happened to people who are pushed to the fringes of a capitalist society what she adds is this powerful and poetic meditation on grief and mortality, time itself. I remember thinking, because Shakespeare is evoked a couple very memorable times, it was as if she had taken Nomadland, the nonfiction book, and mashed it up with a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, And it sincerely left me wondering what Shakespeare would have made of the badlands, of the concept of light years. You know, we see McDormand's Fern She's loosed from society. She's living an alternate life. In fact, what we see her is living alternate lives. We see this relationship develop between her and David Strathern's uh, Dave. We see her at a dance, shyly, reluctantly joining him on the dance floor. She's a teenager again. We see the childless fern, reluctantly again, holding David's grandchild. What would motherhood have been like? And all of this against the backdrop of the massive ancient landscape of the middle part of America. And we see this through Fern's windshield. And so again, there's the poetry and the reality mashed up. Now the other thing I love about this movie is that I think I saw it as a very personal approach to this material. This is a nonfiction text but Zhao, I think, sees the nomads in a way that I don't think she's romanticizing it. I think she sees them as artists. I think she relates to them. Um, you know, she understands their lifestyle, the joys, the frustrations, the creativity, the resilience, and the real danger that they experience in their lifestyle are the ones that artists do, filmmakers do, especially artists that are constantly on the road and exchanging that freedom for the danger and the the resilience that they require to get through a day-to-day. I think of... Um, Linda May and Swanky profiled in Bruder's book, who are characters in the movie. These not actors, they're not just a means of like, like they're documentary subjects, like that they're she's giving their lives dignity. She's literally, I think, transforming these real lives into art, not just as representatives of the nomad lifestyle placeholders within this fictional construct, but fully themselves, with all their quirks, their contradictions and pain. And it's why I kind of love that McDormand has been thrown into this too, is that she's a character, she's Fern, but she's also she's also Frances McDormand. And she's, she's a constant reminder of the work of art that we're watching. And in this way, I think all the lives that she encounters in her travels become works of art. And it, it made me think it's like, all our lives are works of art. <laughs> I find this movie so moving, so poetic, so beautiful. Um, truly one of the great recent films.
0: Yeah, and this already felt superficial to me at the time when I, when I talked about it on the show after seeing it and after hearing you describe everything you just described so articulately, it, it feels even more so. But I remember feeling distracted even by mm. Oh, that's Francis yes. McDormand. Yep. that's Francis. And Dave, they're they're walking amongst people I don't know. Especially it, it since, that, like Zhao, pulled, pulled, pulled off the trick in that's the writer. The so the writer, yeah. her her previous film, we both went crazy for. And, and here again, I feel a little bit like the fan of a band that just wants them to make the same album again. <laughs> but I loved that film so much and took a similar approach, blurring mm-hmm. fiction and nonfiction. Has a character named brady jandro who's played by brady jandro and his sister and his father and everyone in his life are the real people in their lives but they're also in a narrative that's clearly a construct that was so successful to me that that then watching her do something different it 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 didn't put its hooks in me quite the way it did for you
1: yeah and i think that's what i saw is that what you have is her taking these Real people and inserting them into a Mm -hmm. fictional narrative and taking the fictional character of Fern and inserting her into a real place. And I, again, it is a magic trick what Zhao pulls off. It worked for me. And I think the criticism of the movie when I heard it was that it's like... They made it look too easy. They made the lifestyle look too easy. They made it look fun working at the Amazon distribution <laughs> warehouse. I'm like, did it? Did it really? Um, and for me, I was just, I felt like it was missing the point of what the, what she was about was celebrating these people that, again, are living at the margins of society, getting by day to day, and that what they are are artists. And I just loved, <laughs> I love mm-hmm. the gift she gave without romanticizing it again, the gift she gave these people um, that were that are victims of society.
0: Well, processing one person's work of art and turning it into something personal for you, mm-hmm. having that experience with it, a great transition into the next film we're going to talk about. And also you mentioned grief and mortality and time itself. So in this case, the film I'm going to mention here is a film from this year, still maybe the best film of the year so far that I've seen called after Yang from the director Koganada, previously did another great film for 2017 called Columbus. And in this case, he's adapting a short story. The short story is from a collection called children of the new world. It's by Alexander Weinstein. It's called saying goodbye to Yang. And I was trying to think of the right analogy to describe what I think is so successful about this adaptation in particular, because then I also want to try to use it later. And, I, I first had – okay, to your point, this is the movie – let's just say it. This is the movie you were referring to when you when you think about the source material and you say, wow, the movie is just so much richer and, and, and so much more complex. It's as if the short story is the spark, hmm. and the filmmaker takes that spark and builds the fire or turns it into a blaze. I think that's what Coconut hmm. does here. But then as much as I like that imagery, especially because I think about sparking the imagination – the more appropriate one, perhaps, that I came up with on the way to Iowa City this morning, Sam, is I know you're such a, a Food Network guy. It's more like Chopped. Do we have any Chopped fans in in the house, right? So they, they give them a box, a basket with four ingredients in it, and they mm. have to make something out of it. Mm. They have to transform it. And here, the short story writer has given Koganata the ingredients, and they're not just random like they are mm-hmm. on Chopped. They, they are carefully thought through but the filmmaker now does have to take those four things and completely transform them mm. and transform them Koganada does and we were mm-hmm. we were joking about it right just now but i don't i don't want to denigrate the source material because i know Koganada doesn't feel that way having having spoken to him i know he doesn't feel that way about the material but i do think the the movie we both feel this way it it enhances the world of the story mm-hmm. so greatly and so substantively that when you read the the story after it, you're you're just even more in awe of what Koganata achieved with the film. And we'll hear from him in just a second. But if you haven't seen it or, or haven't read the short story, briefly, it's a husband and wife. In the near future, Colin Farrell's the husband, Jake. Kira is played by Jodie Turner-Smith. And their AI son slash babysitter slash brother mm-hmm. to their adopted Chinese daughter breaks down. And he sets about to try to repair Yang. That's not quite, but almost as mm-hmm. deep as the story goes. I mean, that's yeah. really the action of the short story. I think you can say the process, even in the story, does put Jake on a, a, a path of self-discovery. But that journey, mm-hmm. again, is so much more extensive and profound in the film. And I think it's because Koganada goes beyond the idea or the concept of Yang and what it might provoke. And he actually approaches this, this synthetic human with so much... Empathy. So I want to play a quick clip from from Koganata when I talked to him about this film, and he references the short story and what the spark was from the source material. When I read the short story, it was about this sort of catching up to grief. Like, mm. you know, Jake isn't immediately grieving the loss of, of Yang. And I thought, oh, that, you know, that's such an interesting idea of grief. And now that I think about it, you know, Columbus is also uh, Jin catching up to you know that he's not Absolutely. immediately sad that his his father it, might be dying. So I don't know what that is, <laughs> you know. But right. I thought it was new with uh, after Yang. But I'm like, even as you're talking about it, it's like oh no, that that is the experience that that Jin is also having is that he's sort of catching up to it. And I there is something there about mm. you know the whatever that means, you know. It's interesting to me. Another thing he he does. So he takes that spark, this idea of when he reads the story, he sees it. And what it provokes in him is this idea of a character who is just catching up to grief, as he expressed. And he says, "Okay, now, how do I how do I? How do I make that something that's deeper and I can explore over a ninety-minute or a two-hour film, while also having it still be a film that is about all those other subjects? It is still very much about about memory. It's about identity. It's about Asian identity, very mm-hmm. specifically. Which I don't think the story, although it positions Yang obviously as this Chinese character and they have a Chinese daughter, it, it doesn't really get into that. It treats no. it more as just an aspect of this new this new world, this almost dystopia where they've gone through a bunch of different conflicts with different nations. It's more of a backdrop than anything. And Koganata says, "I, that's personal to me. Yeah. I, want to, I want to pull that from the story and explore it. And one of the other tricks he, he applies, though I'm sure he didn't think of it that way, but with the character Jake, uh, again, played by Farrell, I brought up in my conversation with him how there's a really important scene in the movie that's not in the book where he... Jake is describing to Yang why he became a tea maker. That's what he does for a living. He makes these these custom, these bespoke teas, and he talks about a documentary, a real documentary that's really good uh, from 2007 that is about this guy who scours the the planet looking for tea, and he invented that. Koganata pulled from the documentary that always stayed in his mind. It impacted him in a a deep way, and he said, I'm going to make Jake a tea maker, and he he expressed it in the sense that he liked the idea that Jake was someone who had this, this art that he practiced, mm-hmm. but, but was becoming disillusioned with it. And we're meeting this character at this point in time at the beginning of the film who is disillusioned. Again, I don't think in the story we even know. In the know story, he works at, at Crate and Barrel. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Actually, you're right. So he gives him this, yeah. whole, this whole life and this whole inner life through his chosen profession. And that idea of disillusionment then justifies everything that happens after after that because then you understand why he is so determined to try to understand who Yang was and unpack what Yang is this this synthetic human again who's just been living in his house but he's kind of not it seems almost really paid attention to or or tried at all to understand now after he's gone he is trying to do that but I, I think it all stems from that well of disillusionment again that's a complete invention on Koganamis But the part.
1: disillusionment extends not only to his work um, to Yang, but also to his child. Yeah. Um, there is the scene that just <laughs> lifted me out of my chair is that so Yang is gone, but he still has access. Uh, Jake still has access to his memories, essentially his internal core memory. Um, so literally his <laughs> the computer chip that is the memory that makes him work, but also his memories. And so it's like uh, Jake uh, Farrell is wearing like a VR headset, and can sort of move through the the hard drive essentially that that contains Yang's memories and what he sees is he's seeing what Yang saw how he how he yeah. saw the world including how he interacted with Jake's child and he's he's seeing these things that he hasn't seen his child do and then he hears something and it's his child right who is right in front of him, and he takes off the headset, and it's like he's seeing her for the first time in years. You see Fer- i mean, it's a brilliant bit of acting, but you see Farrell just like, oh, I see you. Mm-hmm. and um, None of which, any of those aspects of, you're
0: talking about are in the story.
1: None, none are in the story. Um, so that's what it is. So, yes, it's about maybe— the disillusionment, I, there is something, and again, it's a short story. It's, it's trying to do other things. It's about like liberal hypocrisy more than mm-hmm. anything. Um, but but if, there's dis, if, if it's him catching up with it um, in the book, it's just expanded and enriched in so many ways in all areas of Jake's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your next pick. So I'm going to move on to a favorite film of mine from last year, which is The Lost Daughter um, by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Also on Netflix, I'm, I think. <laughs> we're, not, we're not chills. Brought to you we by promise. Netflix. Okay. So, um, this is her adaptation as writer and director of Italian novelist Elena Ferrante's 2006 novella. The book's great, uh, which I caught up with just recently. Um, but it was actually the first title I thought of when Adam and I first t- talked about this. I was like, I want to talk about The Lost Daughter. And even though I hadn't read, the source material at the time watching the film. I was like, this is a great adaptation and it's mostly about something I think I'll get to at the end. Remind me if I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book is essentially a self portrait. It's written in the first person of this so-called unnatural mother. It's how the character Leda played in the film by Olivia Coleman describes herself. She's a 40 something college professor who we learn left her husband and her two young girls when the girls were young. Three and six. She was gone for three years, pursuing her career and a relationship with another man. What the book doesn't do, it doesn't excuse that monstrous act it might be described as. It doesn't punish her for it. It is just a fact of her life. It's something that happened 20 years ago. She eventually returned to her kids. She repaired those relationships, we can assume. Um, her career, we're led to believe, continued to thrive. So if the book isn't about this most significant, dramatic moment of her life, what's it about it's about how that act, everything before it, everything after it, lives in her mind. So here she is. She's on vacation. We're led to believe in the book, and it's implied in the, in the film, too, that it may be the first time she's ever traveled alone. Um, her kids are grown. They're in their 20s now, but it, it's implied that she's, they've been living with her, but now they're living with her dad. And so she's alone for the first time. And so the book is about now that she's alone with her thoughts— And triggered by this family she observes on vacation at the beach, specifically a young mother played by Dakota Johnson, her memories smashing into her consciousness. I mean, it is like physically violent, um, the way these memories, um, especially as portrayed in the film. So in in the novella, Ferrante writes, like a magnet, the present was drawing itself all the past days of my life. So. How does Maggie Gyllenhaal take this first-person narrative? It's all like subtly shifting emotions and judgmental observations about the fellow beachgoers, the memories of her earlier life, her children in a marriage. Well, the first trick is what's incredible is there is no voiceover. Um, And she does this because she casts Olivia Coleman as Leda where pages and pages of internal monologue appear like magic on her face. I, this is truly one of the great performances of the last several years. And then there's Helene Louvart's cinematography, uh, Alfonso uh, Goncalves' editing, where the camera will be taking in some silent drama on the beach from Leda's perspective, safely at a distance. And then suddenly Leda's memories of her children, of her previous life, they come at her. Suddenly out of nowhere, sharply, like a blast of wind, and those memories are always intimate and suffocating. The other thing that she does, um, is turn over half the film. So, in the book, it's all from this first person perspective, and it's her memories of how she, you know, how she came to make the decision about like. I'm being suffocated here. I maybe no longer love my husband. My my children are destroying me. Um and so you're seeing it from a distance or a move in the book. Um it's not those memories are what are causing her, you know, discontent, but they're not really vivid in the book because you know she survived them. Well, Jill and Hall turns over essentially half the movie to Uh, Jesse Buckley's younger version of Leda. And it's just at that point she's making that fateful choice. And here I just want to turn things over to someone smarter than me. I reached out to another fan of the movie, Deborah Stein. She's a playwright. And I asked her what she loved about the movie. And she says, one of the things I admired was that the film had the backbone to tell the story of a mother who left her children. And to not make her a villain. The Buckley scenes were painfully true to both the euphoria and the hell of being a woman with small children while trying to advance a career. And the A story with Coleman shows not just the cost of her choice to leave, but also, in a way that is subtly shocking, given contemporary moral frameworks, the benefits. She benefits. It's a film that has the balls or the ovaries, (laughs) Deborah (laughs) writes, to say something that we're not allowed to say. And watching it, I felt the rush of seeing a taboo revealed. Uh, very eloquent. And I think it's this. It's Gyllenhaal's vivid depiction of raising kids. The euphoria, the hell. I do not think it has been done better on film. It is horrific in moments. It is euphoric. And it's completely relatable. And it's brilliant.
0: Mm, Use the right word, suffocating. And it yeah. is because of the the camera, the editing, that performance. I was thinking it is almost claustrophobic and, and you're right with a, a film that isn't from that first person perspective, very hard to try to even pull off. How, how do we align everything so clearly and distinctly that, that we are inside her head. It's like, we're experiencing all of this. that's playing out and the memories yep. along with her. And, and the way Hall does that through the craft yep. through, through the medium of film really is remarkable. and, talk about knowing what we're doing and, and setting up transitions here, Sam. we are talking about the Oh, past. I didn't get to my
1: thing. Oh, I set, okay. set up the thing that I didn't get to. Go for I it. wanted to. before. So, uh, so the reason why when I was watching the film, I was like, this is a great adaptation, even though I haven't read the source material. There is something that the later character does in the film and in the book, which is completely inexplicable. And it's something that affects the Dakota Johnson character, but even more so affects her child, who's like three or four years old. The movie never offers an explanation. And it is the kind of literary symbolic gesture that you often see in literature, but rarely in film. And I love how Hall handled it, where why she does this thing is a mystery even to the character and remains a mystery for us to just sit in. Mm. I rarely see... Films that feel like literature or make you feel like literature, and this is one. Mm.
0: Well, so past smashing against consciousness, and mm. we're talking about things before and after it, it, it living in her mind. Are, are we ready to go down this this rabbit hole or maybe wormhole is <laughs> oh, is well, better? Right. We, we got about, I don't know, maybe 13
1: minutes, Sam, to get two more picks <laughs> okay, in. Can we do it? So if, if I got you right, what we can do is um, if we had to use some alien language. If we use some all, alien language. They could understand can all, everything. Exactly. In in seconds
0: or a okay. split second, okay. No, instead you're gonna you're gonna have to listen. Now I'm also gonna note that I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil this movie. I mean, it came out six years ago. So if you have not seen, and it was
1: a big one, Best Picture nominee, I believe. Yeah,
0: and no, nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. If you haven't seen Arrival by Denis Villeneuve or read the Ted Chang short story, Story of Your Life, then I, I don't know. Plug your ears. <laughs> but but you can't talk about it. and You can't talk about it as an adaptation without getting into what the what the story is about. Denis Villeneuve, I mentioned the director, Eric Heisserer the adapter the screenwriter in this case and i'm gonna continue my chopped analogy analogy sam and say i was hoping you would yeah ted chang here hasn't just given the director the ingredients he's he's prepared the meal and 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 it's only about 20 or 30 pages longer Mm. it's 54 total i think 20 or 30 pages longer than saying goodbye to yang but the material is so rich Mm. so dense that it's not on the filmmakers to adapt it they just they just have to represent it they have to yeah. represent this for a different set of patrons and and really what they have to do is they have to make it cinematic so for those who have seen arrival and and maybe remembered i'll just kind of briefly <laughs> briefly set it up here but in both the story and and the movie there's really kind of an a and a b narrative there's parallel narratives aliens have landed there's 12 ships throughout the world that are trying to communicate they seem to be expressing that they want to engage with humans, but nobody knows what their purpose is or what they're trying to say. Louise, played by Amy Adams in the film, is tabbed by the military. She's a linguistics professor. Her job is to figure out how to communicate with them, understand what they want, why they're here. As that's happening, she, she keeps flashing back, seemingly flashing back to visions of experiences with her daughter, who we know from the prologue of the film – we think we know from the prologue of the film has died at fourteen because of a disease, presumably cancer. In the book, mm. she's actually twenty-five, and it's not—it's like it's a hiding not, accents. Yeah, or it's yeah. she's out on, a, on an adventure. It's not at all tied to a disease. But the central conceit of this film, the the reveal, is that those moments with her daughter, as she's interacting with with the aliens, this whole experience being w- with the military at this site in Montana, they're not they're not flashbacks at all. They're actually all occurring after the events with the aliens. It's a little bit memento-like in that by the end of the film, maybe the opposite of memento, I'm going to confuse myself here, but at, by the time we get to the very end of the film, we're basically back at the beginning. Yeah. We're ready yep. to begin uh, the, the prologue, and she's seeing them because through her communication with the aliens, her brain has been rewired to experience time the way they do, which is nonlinear. So she's experiencing the future and the present together. And that philosophical question that it poses to us is if by the end of the book and by the end of the movie, if you knew, if you actually knew what was going to happen to you when you made a certain choice, if you knew what the effect ultimately was going to be, and it's terrible, would you, would you still do it? Would you still make the choices? And, and what, what Chang does I think in a really fascinating way is he he takes this this wrinkle that so much of science fiction is about this idea of free will and fate Mm -hmm. and destiny. But he he suggests that you can kind of have it both ways and actually still be in control. Mm -hmm. That at the end of the we are seeing at the end of the film this character still make a choice. It's the choice still still make this active choice. So um this this for me, why is it such an interesting and and such a good adaptation? Three aspects I'll, I'll touch on here as briskly as I can. These Heptapods, as they call them. They're, they're seven-legged sort of creatures. They talk, they communicate. They do have a language, it seems, but they find that it's much easy, easier to communicate with them via imagery. And that's because words can only be put together sequentially. And the images, like the way they think, they process information and, pro- and process time, it's completely nonlinear. So these images take on that That resonance and convey everything they want to convey. they're called logograms, and in the story we we can't see those. Mm-hmm. We can only hear louise or or read Louise describing what they're like in the film. Villeneuve can can bring those images to to vivid life. The communication with the heptopods occurs via a screen, a big <laughs> Wide mm-hmm. screen, and I was mm. sitting on my couch last <laughs> night, rewatching this film. my My head illuminated, my face illuminated by my wide TV, not quite as wide as the screen in the, in the film, sadly. And I'm looking at the heads on the screen repeatedly that are illuminated by a wide screen mm-hmm. that they're looking at. They basically get these two hour sessions,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> right, with these creatures in the dark, where they get to try and engage with what's on the screen yeah. and try to better understand the world. And in the book, they call them, the names Louise gives them are Raspberry and Flapper in the movie. Anybody remember what their names are in the movie? Abbott and Costello. Abbott and Costello. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 <laughs> right? So it's appropriate that they're given movie yes. movie names. And then the thing that cinema can do, as we talk about this, this film and the story that's so much about time and rethinking how we think about time and approach it, is what cinema can do that a book really can't. Is it's, It is portrayed in one key scene that is in both, which is the daughter in one of these flashbacks, it's not a flashback, says, is asking the mom for help with homework, I think. And she's looking for the phrase, a non-zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And as this is playing out, Louise can't help her. Mom can't think of it. doesn't doesn't know what the answer is. She, the daughter goes off angrily. In the book, what happens is later when she's interacting with the mathematician character played by Jeremy Renner, and she's talking to the military, he says the phrase non-zero-sum game. And in the story then, what follows that is us going back and revisiting that and her telling her daughter it's a non-zero-sum game. Now, we're, we're reading it, we're reading it you know left to right top to bottom and it's it's a little confusing and it 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 doesn't have the same the same effect as it does in the film where it can all play out in one one elegant scene right where with editing we can we can perceive it as if it truly is happening simultaneously that is that in the moment that she's hearing that character Ian in the movie Gary in the book don't know why they changed it mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh Ian says non-zero sum game. It is as if at that exact moment she's also saying that to her daughter because again, time is completely it's all happening simultaneously. The movie can convey that in a way again with yeah. with the with the craft that the book has to has to give it, it to has us to in describe.
1: order. Yeah, I mean she does describe the logograms as essentially Everything being written simultaneously. It starts with a gesture which becomes multiple things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And the way that and it's and the, the story is very effective in the way that as the character's mind begins to change in the way she's perceiving reality, so are our ours. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that there is a new way, you're constantly being fed information that Forces you to imagine a different way of thinking, thinking about the entire world, and that that is effective in the text. And also, the text is written in a way where verb tenses are used in an unusual mm-hmm. way, where you're talking about something in the past that's going to happen in the future. So there are effective, like yeah. um, you know, tricks in the text. That Yeah.
0: Kid. yeah and, and I'll say, I mean, sort of the gut punch of that film and what's mm. kind of mind blowing about it is that the thing you're still thinking about when you walk out or when you put the book down, put the short story down, that they're, they're still there. The movie is still, is still wrestling with the central idea that, yeah. that Chang is. But there is some adaptation going on. There's still these practical and thematic and personal concerns coming through. You know, a short story can be that provocation. It can mm. be a character has an epiphany. Those, those are the stakes of a novella, right? Mm-hmm. In in a film, that's not going that's to right. fly. So we do have to introduce this element. <laughs> You're not going to spend of, $40 million on it. Though. No, no, we have to, you know, it's not just all through Louise's head. We get the outside world encroaching. The world is in panic. We don't get that in the book, right. but we get the nope. sense from the movie, of course, that the world is in panic, as you would imagine, from these alien creatures. We don't know what they're here for. We are afraid that we're maybe going to be under attack. It It has an element of... China potentially yeah. going to war against them. It raises the stakes in a way a movie has to, yeah. but without at all making the film about that. It doesn't yes. turn into an action movie. It's not really a suspense movie. It's still all about yeah. serving Louise's journey, which yeah. is what I think makes it such a successful adaptation.
1: Agreed. Yeah, and I think that, that it almost surprises you that they didn't hijack... The movie and turn it into something else, and that's yeah. that's that's the true achievement yeah, I'll of the just, movie. Yeah.
0: I'll just say too, I know some some people feel a little tricked by it, like mm. like oh, Villeneuve he, he pulled a fast one on us. He he made it seem like these were flashbacks, and then it, it turns out they're not. No, he's. He's putting you in the – he's doing what a good filmmaker does. He's putting you in the exact same situation as the character, yeah. as the main character, as the protagonist you're following. You're processing this information and, and these revelations at exactly yeah. the same time. In the same way that we are, as humans, wired – we can only understand time in one way. It can only be things are about to happen. We're in the moment and they're about to happen. Or they've happened in the past. We don't know what's what's going to to happen in the future. Well, we also, there's a cinematic language where we understand when we watch a flashback. Mm-hmm. He's playing with that idea that that he knows the audience is going to go, oh, okay, I know I'm in the past right now. And and I, I think the movie in its own way is doing the same kind of rewiring that the that the
1: heptopods are doing. Yeah, you just you you need to do the work of getting over your initial reaction that you've been surprised. Yeah because the short story Makes your mind change over the course of the story. You're you're learning to think the way the Haptopods do, mm-hmm. and as she does, as Louise does, over the course of the forty five pages, the movie effectively. But I think this is what worked against it for some people: is that it's a sudden thing at the end. It's a revelation. It's a gift the aliens give to her instead. Right,
0: but only a revelation because of the yes, aspects because, I'm speaking to. Exactly. Because we're so sure, right? We can't perceive it any right. other way. And I, do, it's I not flash.
1: I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I feel like. Like you didn't review this on the show, I at Josh and Michael Phillips did, and yeah. I, I can't remember. I've been if subtweeting it was Josh before. this entire time. <laughs> right. actually, I can't remember if it was yeah. Michael or Josh who, to your point, were like, it was a trick ending. Yeah, you know, it was just like, oh, they just pulled the rug out from under us, and. It was surprising to see. Like I was, I remember yeah. listening to the audio, be like, "But no, that's the whole point. You got to rethink the whole thing." Yeah, and
0: that that becomes a lot clearer. <laughs> They're good guys. Though. I in, love them. I mean, I, I don't want. In fairness, good. that becomes a lot clearer after you read the Ted Chang story. That is true. So, that is true. okay. Let's wrap it up. We have one more choice here. One more adaptation, a recent we adaptation. Can't see, if
1: you want to walk out, because we can't say anything out of are <laughs> just right in our eyes.
0: So. <laughs> we're,
1: Don't be offended.
0: We're good, Sam. We just got to make this, you know, only about five minutes. Five
1: minutes. Okay. This is going to surprise you, because this is not an acclaimed film like everything no. else we've mentioned, but this is right in our wheelhouse. So this is The King. I think it's 2019. David Michaud, the Australian filmmaker. David Michaud, Joel Edgerton, adapting Shakespeare here. Uh, you got Edgerton and Fal- as Falstaff. Timothy Chalamet, the king of the Mm-hmm. Refocus Film Fest. Uh, as how
0: we're <laughs> appropriately ending. It ending started with Chalamet, Alpha and the Omega. Right? Well done.
1: So I know I went into this film thinking it was a probably ill-advised remake of Henry V, and so then we open the film opens, and I love the opening moment. It's, it takes this wonderfully ambiguous shot of a of a character on a battlefield. Um, it seems to be at dawn. There's clear. It's clearly post battle. Is that you're wondering? Is that Hal? Is that Henry V? Is this Agincourt? Um, No, it's revealed to be Hotspur, uh, Hal's adversary, cruelly putting a soldier out of his misery, which throws us way back—not Henry V, but way back, actually, before the action that starts Henry IV, Part One. You know, because I think there was some confusion about what this is. What what is it supposed to be? Um, Because it is Henry IV, Part One and Two and Henry V in about two and a half hours, but it is also not that at all. Um, and so why is it? And so essentially what I came to terms with is that, well, he's not using Shakespeare's language at all. They're not using Shakespeare's language, um, but they're they're not because they are telling a different story. They are choosing to tell a different story. And as I rewatched it recently this past week, I was like, how would you tell the story of Henry V? How would you retell Henry, Henry V if you hated the monarchy, if you hated the very concept of the monarchy, when Henry V is all about celebrating, bringing, you know, Henry V comes out of like years of usurping yeah, and He's often portrayed on as
0: even more jingoistic yes. than, the, than the text well, right. itself could arguably be interpreted. Right.
1: So I think that's one of the fascinating ways to think about it because they turn Hal, who is this great hero king this great soldier king into a pacifist i mean that is really not an exaggeration and who has more contempt what shakespearean character has more contempt for the monarchy or at least a monarch his dad is hal Mm -hmm. he spends his whole dissolute life hanging out with Falstaff and in the pub and and the pub and so i think what they take is this idea of a character who hates the monarchy hates war and comes to the realization that his the only way for him to to stop war, is for him to become king. Um, That, unfortunately, as we see, doesn't stop the war. I don't know. Maybe you want to dig into the Falstaff because that's another fascinating arc of the book. Well,
0: I I, I think— That is the the biggest thing, actually, even more than Prince Hal that stands out about the film, is you've got a character in Falstaff who I think ultimately, especially in Henry V, you see meets his demise and can be seen as a tragic character. But he was mostly throughout Shakespeare there to amuse. He's there to be derided playfully. He can be an object of pity at times. And and the movie says, we're going to redeem Falstaff somehow. We're going to turn him into this almost heroic character. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, Joel Edgerton wrote— the co-wrote the screenplay and he's playing Falstaff and it's sort of like you know this would be a lot more interesting if I played him completely differently than anybody well, not else just play
1: him but write yeah, him and write yes. him so I'm yeah.
0: gonna I'm gonna write it this way so I have that that opportunity I, I think that that I don't know that it's something my Shakespeare professor back when I was an undergrad would appreciate but yep. you know it it worked for me I appreciate the moxie of it and then with with Hal you're absolutely right that the film does something fascinating which is and I think it it pulls it off. It makes him at once more boyish than mm, he yes, is certainly definitely. in the Brana and certainly in the Olivier, Olivier yeah. and also makes him more soulful. I think that's the only word, you, you know, he is truly a, a pacifist or at least begins that way and yeah. is then thrust into certain circumstances. But the, the line from the prologue in, in the Shakespeare, then should the warlike Harry like himself, that doesn't apply to Chalamet's character at all. He's trying to avoid it. And, you know, key scene, uh, I love, by the way, if you haven't seen this movie, Robert Pattinson plays the fan, oh, the Delphan. Prince of France, and just just <laughs> deliciously <laughs> renders every line and moment the way you would expect Robert Pattinson
1: to do. Let's just make this field famous, <laughs> this Agincourt. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah he, he amps up everything. It's, it's really fun. But he, he sends Prince Hal a tennis ball. It's a slight against him. It's basically saying, you know, you're, you're a kid. And he's trying to put him down. And in the in the text and in the movies, this becomes this jumping off point, this yeah. rallying point where where Henry is is livid. And he says, OK, well, he's going to give me the tennis balls. I'll make you know, the Louvre shake. And, you know, he's going to do all the, this destruction to to France. And, and Chalamet's Hal says uh, it's a pretty good joke. Good joke. He's like, actually, I, you know, I, I have been childish. <laughs> I'm
1: going to hold on to this ball. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep. I'm gonna keep ball. it on my desk. That's, I like this yeah. present. And <laughs> right.
0: and and his counselors are going. You have to show force. Like you have to, you have to now respond the way he does in the text. And he says, no, I don't need to do that. You know, I'm, I'm comfortable enough uh, with with my masculinity, and I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I think the last thing I'll say, Sam, is that he also Shalome plays Henry lacking a, a trait that I've always. Scene applied to him, which is guile
1: mm-hmm. he he I think mm-hmm. he oh, yeah.
0: again, I haven't read to your point Henry the Fourth, part, one or two, in a long time. I think it even happens at the end of part two. He pretty much comes out and says explicitly, and i don't know if it's a soliloquy or to someone else he says. You know, this has all kind of been by design. Oh yeah. You know, I like all the, the hanging out in the, the with the prostitutes yep. and uh, drinking in the pub. It's not just because it's more fun and I hate my dad, but also I know I'm going to become king someday, and I'm setting expectations really low. low. Yes. <laughs> so that when when I do assume the throne and I'm competent, yeah, I'm competent. <laughs> I'm going to look even more glorious. Yep. And that's what he does. And that's even, you know, another great adaptation of Henry V that actually uses some of the language in a way the king doesn't. Gus Van Sant's my own private Idaho. Yep. Keanu Reeves plays a Prince Hal character, yep. but his name is Scott and it's in Portland. <laughs> and, you know, he's he's a male prostitute on the streets, but he he is the mayor's son. Yep. And he has that sense to him even, that, that this has all been a ploy yes. and that he's, he knows he's eventually going to assume the throne. That's what this character... It, Typically has always had, and and this film doesn't approach it that way at all.
1: Yeah. So getting back to Falstaff briefly is so at the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, you get probably the most famous line from that that play. Falstaff thinks that now that Hal has risen to become Henry V, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be taken care of. He's going to be part of the court. And he comes up to him on coronation day. And Hal says, I know thee not, old man. Fall to thy prayers. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old and so profane, but being awaked, I do sup- despise my dream. He breaks Falstaff's heart. He kills him. Essentially, mm-hmm. what we get in Henry V yeah. is that Falstaff essentially dies of a broken heart um, not long after that. What the king presupposes is maybe he didn't die. <laughs> maybe he didn't. Maybe he becomes a heroic figure well done. and he becomes... <laughs> He becomes a close advisor of Hal and is at Agincourt, in fact, not just at Agincourt, makes the trip across the English Channel and fights alongside Hal, but is essentially the strategic hero of Agincourt, drawing the French troops into the swamp. What does Falstaff say? He says something like, I either die of drink in East Cheap right. or I die here on the battlefield. And this is a better well, story. this is a better story. And this is a better story. He says that. Mm-hmm. So it's wonderfully self-aware in the way it reimagines these characters as Shakespeare did. As Shakespeare did. Taking characters, well-known stories, and reimagining them.
0: Well, I don't know how edifying or entertaining this was for the audience, Sam, but I mean, it was cathartic for you know some, some, some English majors to get to talk about adaptation on screen. We thank all of you for your attention and the Refocus Film Festival for including us. Good to be home in Iowa City. Thank you, everybody. Our thanks again to everyone at Iowa City Film Scene and the Refocus Film Festival for having us. Thanks in particular to Film Scene Executive Director Andrew Sherburn and Programming Director Ben Delgado. More info about Film Scene is at icfilmscene.org. That's our show. A final reminder to recommend us this week. If you like the show, please do. Share it with a friend, share it on a social network, rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. I'm at Film Spotting. Josh is at Larson on Film. And Sam is at Sam Van Halgren. At Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll inspired by The Fablemans. The question Who has made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade? And keep an eye out for. Our Film spotting family top 100 greatest films poll results coming very soon. Also on our website for show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Josh, for Sam, for Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.